Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Katherine Shen. Last week, homelessness was officially declared a public health crisis in Connecticut. An act declaring homelessness a public health crisis was introduced by the Public Health Committee at the state capitol in February, and this law took effect last Sunday. And the lack of affordable housing remains a major issue here in the state. And today, we'll get an update on affordable housing and hear how some towns are addressing it. We'll also learn about a housing model known as co-housing and hear from a co-housing collective based in Massachusetts. Later on, New York Times global health reporter Stephanie Nolan joins us to discuss her year-long trip around the globe to investigate how the world's most vulnerable communities are addressing mosquito-borne illnesses. First up, Connecticut Mirror reporter Ginny Monk joins us. Ginny, welcome back to Where We Live. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Ginny, we mentioned earlier that just last week, homelessness was declared as a public health crisis here in Connecticut. Can you talk about how much have we seen the homeless population increase here? Yeah, so uh, providers are reporting large increases and uh, particularly concerning uh, increases in the amount of time people are spending in shelter, which means that the system overall is burdened. You know, if people are staying longer in shelter, it means another person can't have that shelter bed. Um, so, so providers are struggling right now. And so with a lot of people needing those shelters, can you also talk about if uh, evictions and having insecure housing impact uh, those of uh, their health? Definitely. Um, there's plenty of studies that show eviction has negative outcomes um, for both physical health and, and mental health. And uh, there's lots of ties between where you live and uh, your health outcomes. And with that being such a, a huge element in terms of needing housing, you also did some reporting last week about how much it will take for Connecticut homeless shelters to get ready for winter. You know, what does that look like now? Or have they been making preparations this whole time? You know, when do they start doing that? Yeah, so they just recently found out how much money uh, sort of each region of Connecticut is going to get for um, winter shelter beds. So typically around November, Connecticut's homeless shelters open additional locations, more beds so that people can stay warm when it gets really, really cold. And is that something that you've seen increase? Is it the same? Or do you see them sort of needing to start earlier or have, you know, is there more work needed to get those shelters going? Yeah, so there's definitely more work. Uh, things are still doing. Um, this is not a, a quick simple process. You know, there are inspections that have to be done. Uh, locations have to be found. Outreach needs to be done to the, the folks who are living, particularly out in the woods or um, in camps. Uh, 
In the last legislative session, we saw service providers asking for 50 million um, for what they called rescuing the uh, homeless response system, um, including annualizing that cold weather funding. And they have about 5 million, which uh, providers have said is not enough. And, and even a Department of Housing fish official has said that's not going to be enough. But, you know, they're, they're doing what they can with, with what they have. Right. And of course, that can't happen unless you have a partnership between agencies. And that's something that you also reported on in terms of working with the unhoused and landlords. So can you talk about those partnerships and relationships? What's happening here? Yeah. So uh, one thing Connecticut uh, tends to do quite well is that the providers work really well together. They have all of these coordinated systems of entry. uh, And a few counties are starting up a new initiative to sort of um, more seriously involve landlords in the the process of finding homes for Connecticut's uh, unhoused population. So this will be in Fairfield, Litchfield, and New London counties. And and there's a number of sort of incentives that they're going to provide to to landlords to, you know, get them interested in, in housing people who have been unhoused. And is this the coordinated access network that you're talking about? Yeah, so the coordinated access network is is working together um, on this. Uh, one thing that I think they're really excited about is there's going to be a database of landlords who do work with um, shelter systems to to house folks, and um, that'll sort of help them know, like, okay, this landlord's already been called. I, I don't need to put in more calls for all of these other people. They're they're already working with someone. Um, and and just to know what's available more easily. Right. Anything to help streamline the process. And of course, I think a lot of these people who are looking for housing, they may or may not have data available or they may not have information available. So sort of going into this next question, can you talk about this concern about damages and why addressing it is important? You know, how does this concern look like? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that's sort of always a concern for landlords, no matter who they're renting to, it can be expensive to fix damage to apartments. Um, so sort of to to give folks who have been unhoused a, a leg up when they're already facing sort of a lot of um, challenges that that in, in finding housing um, providers are offering a little additional money in the event that damages exceed the security deposit amount. Right. And are from your conversations, are you getting a sense that landlords are hesitant to provide housing for people that are homeless because they don't have rental history? You know, what are you hearing? Yeah, that makes it tough. Um, a lot of these folks uh, have evictions on their record as well. And, and we know that that can uh, make it really difficult for them to find someone willing to rent to them. And, and then you think as well about the families uh, and individuals who have sort of special needs for their housing. So by that, I mean, um, you know, if they need uh, an accessible apartment, if it's a family with lots of children, they might need more bedrooms. And and that just makes it even harder to find housing. Right. And as they are looking for housing, going through this very complicated process, are you seeing these unhoused individuals using vouchers? And can you also explain what these vouchers are? Yeah, so the the voucher system essentially uh, is government assistance for 
rent. So folks will pay up to a third of their income towards rent and whatever's left over the voucher covers. Um, so the Department of Housing recently announced a number of new vouchers uh, targeted towards families experiencing homelessness uh, to try to get them housed. But what providers are saying is that uh, sometimes the there's so little housing that, that folks aren't able to find it, even if they do have a voucher. And, and sometimes they're even losing the vouchers because they can't find housing quickly enough. So this sounds like a multifold issue. Do you think this speaks to a need for more landlords and rentals that will take housing vouchers or there's a need for more housing or is it a mix of the two? I think all of the above. Um, there's all types, all parts of the housing market um, that are struggling right now with with a lack of housing. And I mean, this extends to, of course, multifamily housing, which we've heard a lot about in Connecticut, but even, you know, down to single family housing, the real estate market uh, is really struggling with supply right now. And when these individuals, when they get a voucher, how many days do they have to get secure housing before they lose it? So they typically have 30 days uh, and can request an extension, which requires a certain amount of paperwork and typically just the one 30-day extension. So up to 60 days if you're willing to do that additional paperwork. Wow, that doesn't seem like a lot of time. Are you hearing people struggling to to find us a, a space within 30 or 60 days? Definitely. Um, I, I spoke to one woman recently who she recounted sending, uh, I think, 15 listings to the her housing case manager who was helping her find a place just because she was so nervous about about getting that housing before she ran out of time. And is that something that you're hearing? I'm assuming it sounds like a pretty common experience. Yeah, I, I think it's fairly common. And again, um, you see these particularly families with kids or uh, folks who, who need a first floor apartment so that their wheelchair can, can get in um, struggling a little bit more. And as they are finding these housing, can you talk about what do the housing conditions of these homes look like? Yeah, so um, vouchers, if you have a housing choice voucher, there are certain federal regulations that need to be met. Um, There's been sort of reporting around the country about some issues with some of these inspection systems. And we know, you know, just from various research that um, lower income families tend to be in older housing stock, which uh, is not up to the same building code as some of the newer housing stock that we've seen uh, pop up around the state. So, you know, it really is different, different housing conditions for, for lower income people. And you also did an incredibly in-depth investigation into the death of a two-year-old that fell out of a third floor window. So this is a very complicated story, but can you tell us about, about this story, how it speaks to the problem of not just affordable housing, but also safe housing? Yeah. So, you know, this was um, something the family had struggled with for some time at the time of uh, the toddler's death, their refrigerator wasn't working, for example. So the mom was struggling to um, keep food fresh for the children. Um, and and then because of the, in part because of the building codes that I 
mentioned to you, the apartment was not required to have window guards. Uh, some newer developments are. Um, the window didn't latch properly, according to the mother. And, um, you know, she, she thought about purchasing window guards, but they were expensive and, and she had been looking at moving out soon. So it's, it's sort of a tough calculation to make there, right? Are you going to make this investment in a rental house that doesn't belong to you um, to put in those window guards if you're planning on leaving in a few months? And with this experience and with this story, is this was this home receiving regu- regular inspections and are, are units like these receiving regular inspections? So she did have a housing choice voucher, so it was receiving inspections. Um, from the housing authority, it had failed uh, two inspections in recent years and, and subsequently the landlord had made repairs to sort of satisfy Uh, the conditions of receiving the housing choice voucher. Uh, It had not been inspected by the fire marshal in several years, which is sort of an issue fire marshals across the state have said, we don't have the manpower to meet state regulations as far as inspections for fire safety. And the the city of Hartford is, is rolling out a new rental licensing program, beginning with landlords um, who have larger properties because this was one with fewer units that had not been inspected yet under the city's new program and I, I believe was set to be uh, inspected in 2024 or 2025 according to the city's sort of schedule. And I think as providers are are trying to get more affordable housing, more safe housing in the state, there have been a few proposals put forward to do just that. Can you talk about where are Connecticut towns on creating fair rent commissions? You know, has there been any progress? Yes. So there has been progress. We're seeing towns sort of uh, slowly adopting these and, and putting uh, people on the commissions. Um, this was 2022 legislation that required towns with 25,000 residents or, or more to adopt these ordinances. And, and like I said, we're sort of slowly seeing that roll out, seeing commissions start to meet. Um, it's a process. Right. And along those processes, I think there's a lot of other ways to find new housing. And I know some towns are looking into turning some old mills into housing. So this is actually something happening in Vernon. Can you talk about what these housing projects look like? Yeah. So these old mills, um, as you might know Connecticut has a lot of old mill towns. Um, they're often these mills are often in downtown areas. Um, they've been long abandoned, and and towns are sort of trying to figure out what to do with them. And and a few are turning those into housing. So I think town officials are excited at the prospect of not just having this empty eyesore downtown, um, increasing foot traffic to some of those downtown businesses, and having more housing. Well, we look forward to getting an update from you on those proposals. You've been listening to Ginny Monk. She reports on housing and children's issues at the Connecticut Mirror. Ginny, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Coming up, we hear from a successful co-housing collective based in Massachusetts. It's not a commune or a condo. It's co-housing. Got a question about it? Let us know. 888-720-9677 or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. If you're looking for a new home, high on your wish list might be a place with friendly neighbors, a community who knows and looks out for each other. Now, we're going to learn about how some people are turning to co-housing to save money and find community. Joining us now is Yohai Gao. He's a resident and chair of membership at Rocky Hill Co-housing in Massachusetts. Yohai, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Yohai, can you tell us what exactly is co-housing? You know, how is it different than, say, living in a cul-de-sac with your friends? Uh, Sure, yeah. So, co-housing is legally formed as a condominium, condominium association most of the time. There's a couple other forms, but that's the general uh uh, format you find it in. It is typically a number of homes arranged in a collectively designed manner that are uh, that emphasizes community collaboration, sharing, uh, shared work and tasks and committees. Um, and more most importantly, the land itself is owned and managed by the community as a whole, usually under a trust of some kind. Uh, in the case of my community, we all own our homes individually, but everything from the walls out, including the land, is owned by the community as a whole. And uh, instead of having a third party HOA or something to manage the community, we manage it ourselves. So we are on our we have people that are on the board of trustees that are simply members of the community meaning that they own a home in the community and so how did you get interested in co-housing you know where did you learn about it and and when did you start well i am a bit unusual in this because my family are kibbutzniks from israel so we <laughs> we were primed for this uh but Initially, what drew me to co-housing specifically was I had visited a few with my parents in California uh, many years ago. And so I was familiar with this specific concept, which originated in the 70s from Denmark. And um, when my wife and I were ready to have a kid, we started looking for places that would be more amenable to the kind of lifestyle that um, I prefer, I guess, which is uh, where kids can run around and feel safe outside. Uh, Most cohesion communities don't have parking garages attached to homes. So cars can, in our community, for example, cars can drive up to homes and drop off groceries if that's what you want to do, but they can't stay there overnight 
pretty much uh, well in in almost no with with very few exceptions and the majority of people put groceries and such in little carts that they drag into the community so most of the time my kid can just run around outside and not feel um you know under threat from cars that was one of the biggest draws but also the collaborative aspects uh, of the community were very attractive to me I, I really like this idea that people who should know each other and should have a relationship with one another uh can not only work together to make their n- local re- neighborhood better in either either aesthetically or through improvements to the community or just by um, having meals together but also we reduce costs you know we, we're a community that has 28 homes but only three lawnmowers and that's quite unusual most communities of this size or most neighborhoods of this size every single house has their own lawn and their own lawn, uh, <laughs> mower and that's just not the case for us Right, and I think it's it's wonderful that you were able to find this space that that works for you and your family. And and was it difficult to find a space like that? And and I know you touched on this a little bit earlier, but how is this different than having roommates or having a condo? Yeah, right. So in our case specifically, again, this is not a one size fits all model. You'll find urban co housing communities that are basically uh, an apartment in a building with a shared kind of you know. Uh, quad or something and and those are totally awesome but ours looks more like rural co-housing communities namely we have a little uh space set out just for ourselves with land around it that we own and um plots were built on the uh the part of the land that we're using for homes Uh, specifically rocky hill we're in western massachusetts and most of massachusetts has or I should say Massachusetts has a, a lot of co-housing communities, like a lot. Um, I, I think it's like 13, maybe. I don't remember the total number, but there's a lot. But Western Massachusetts specifically has a lot. And the town I live in has uh, four. Wow. So, um, yeah. So it's And then they're varying size. I mean, the smallest one is like, I think like only somewhere between six and 11 homes. Not a lot. But, the, we you know, a new one just opened um, in uh, the the kind of downtown area of where I, where I live and they have 28 homes and they're totally different design from us. Um, and we actually were interested in, in that one initially, but then it was still under development and uh, a home opened in this community. So we, we took it. And so you mentioned earlier that there's not a one size fits all model, which I think is, is the case for most places. So can you talk about how does pricing work? You know, is this more or less expensive than regular housing? So I would say generally, no, it is not more or less expensive to buy a home. Uh, There's nothing about co-housing that makes it more expensive. There are some complications around finding comparable homes. Uh, When we first tried to buy a home here, we were working with a bank in Boston and they did not know what what it was. And so they didn't know how to find an appraiser who understood it. We're lucky enough that there's a bunch of appraisers out here that understand it. And most co-housing communities will have someone you can talk to that will put you in touch with a, a local appraiser because- for some reason, they don't understand what it is, despite it just being organized legally as a condo association. So I, I, I don't understand that. But that was one uh, kind of bump that was frustrating. However, what makes us unique, I think, and throws people off a little bit is that our, and this is, again, not a one-size-fits-all model. Many communities do this differently. But the way that we do it here is before a community is sold on the open market, there are essentially two groups that can buy uh, the home that's for sale. The The first group is any existing members of the community. 
as in people who already live here and own a home. And the second group is people who are on a wait list that the community populates over, you know, we have our own system for that. But essentially when a house comes for sale first, the people in the community have uh, first dibs on it and can buy it at the appraised value. Um, after that, people on the wait list can buy it uh, in the order that they're on the, the list. And both those groups can bid at the same time. Once that period is over, the community as a whole can buy the house if it hasn't gone to anyone on either of those two groups. And then after 24 days is over, there's like a each of those uh, periods is 12 days. After 24 days is over, it goes on the open market and is sold by owner like anybody else. Um, I bought my house on the market. But what we do currently, the model that we currently have, in my mind, does prevent some of the bloated housing prices that you see uh, all over the market. You know, right now, if you're trying to buy a house, it's completely crazy. And I don't know how anybody who's not, you know, retirees with a house they bought in the 80s, I don't know how you can afford a house. I just don't know. And our, our system, to some degree, makes that easier if you either already own a house and want to want to maybe move to a smaller home in the community, um, which makes better use of housing stock, or you're part of this group that made the effort to get on uh, the community's wait list and then were able to buy at the appraised value, which is our, that's our model. It's not that way everywhere. There are many different models, but that's how we do it. Right. And I think it's really difficult to have a conversation about housing without, like you said, talking about how crazy it is right now and how difficult it is to to buy property. And so you talk about this earlier where once you get into this co-housing community, you do end up sharing some possessions like a lawnmower, for example. So can you talk about, you know, what is shared, what isn't and how does it make things more affordable in the long run? Well, right. So for one thing, uh, we do things collectively if the land itself is uh being impacted by the, what you're trying to do. So for example, um, the front porches of our community, we will paint those all at once, which means that we get a kind of bulk discount when we do it. Um, the same when we uh, paint our homes or uh, retail the roofs or anything that kind of uh, is supposed to be owned by the community, we go in on that collectively. There are also smaller groups that go in on things collectively as well, um, but that's kind of their own. They drive that themselves. Uh, uh, other things that you we we do that there's already typical of co-housing is we have a shared truck. So I, I when I moved here, we only had one car and we definitely didn't have a truck. Um, but we had stuff we needed to move into our house. Like we bought a new dining room table, for example. And the community has a truck that anyone who's a member in the community can sign up to use. And we were able to use that truck to go and pick up a big table from a farm. Um, that's an example of something we would not be able to do normally. I mean, it saved us money. We didn't have to go rent a van or whatever. Um, on the other hand, anything that happens inside your house, you're paying for that yourself. That's kind of your own responsibility. It doesn't come out of HOA fees or anything. You just pay for it. And if you expand your home, like adding a front porch or I should say a, a back porch or finishing your basement or, you know, to make it livable, all that kind of thing, um, that actually does incur an additional charge that then goes into a capital account, which the community can use for whatever they want. So when people are expanding their home, the idea is that they are you they're basically permanently taking away community space. And so when you do that, you are going to pay for that. And um we were, you know, I think the original idea was to prevent sort of McMansions from happening, people just constantly building up their houses. But at the same time, it also gives us money to use on things like uh, when I first moved to the community, I thought it would be a cool idea to have a movie theater kind of space in our common house, which is a shared facility that we all have access to. And I was able to use community funds to 
build it. I mean, I had to get the community to agree to it first, but um, I wouldn't have been able to do that if I had not had a capital fund to pull money from. And that came directly from people expanding their homes. And so I want to make a note for our listeners that there were efforts here in Connecticut to establish the first ever co-housing collective known as the Rocky Corner Co-Housing Project. I'm going to read here a summary of the statement that we received from them. The project started in 2006. Their vision was to build energy efficient homes on property that could be conserved and farmed as well as being affordable. Many obstacles like increased costs led to foreclosure in 2020. They were working with the Town Planning and Zoning Commission, State and Local Health and Housing Department, the Regional Water Authority, and the bank were all elements that slowed the project down. Future homebuyers and original founders all lost money, and 18 of the homes that were close to being finished now lie empty. So, Yohai, with this experience, I want to ask, is this something that is common? You know, do you hear this a lot? Especially from this example, it seems like there's a lot of roadblocks to get something like this going. I've heard it depends on the state, honestly, um, and depends on sure. the kind of culture of the community you're moving into. Are We in Western Massachusetts have a lot of folks who I think are kind of primed for this kind of experience. So the banks that we work with already know what it is. And there are many people here who've worked on these kinds of communities. In fact, our community is a spillover community of an adjacent co-housing community that um, the developer of that community owned the land here. And we were able to make an arrangement with uh, them to build our community. So it, it does come from having, I think, relationships with developers and um, banks and such. I think that does help. That said, I, I don't really know enough nationally uh whether that's a trend this is the, that's the first big one i've heard of sure. there is a community i know of that um had a developer go bankrupt and it completely screwed over a lot of the people who were involved but they actually persisted and um were able to successfully build their community in the end despite losing a, a lot of money so i i don't think there's a kind of general rule about it. Right. And I got one final question for you here. And we've been talking a lot about community in this co-housing sort of a neighborhood. Can you talk about if there's a sense of caring for each other in this community? You know, if someone gets sick or loses their job or has a big life event, you know, how does this community respond? Oh, absolutely. I mean, (laughs) uh, when I first moved here, or about a year after my family moved here, we had something very serious happen. And the community showed up in a way that I I find hard to even, um, I couldn't have imagined. They made meals for us. They did our laundry. They walked our dog. They took care of us for not just like a week, but for like months, months. And that was a really big deal. And I've seen it happen since then a a number of times for folks who have um, uh, injuries or who have to go go to the hospital and be driven back afterwards or who are having uh, other life events that we all go through. And we, we definitely support one another. This was no more true than during COVID where compared to everyone else that I knew who felt really isolated, we, we had a community, you know, we still met outside. We still communicated. We still felt like we were a community. We even did meals outside because we do weekly meals. Um, we were able to do that and, and kind of educate one another about um, the risks as we moved through the pandemic. So I, I can't imagine living, having lived anywhere else during that time. I don't, I, you know, I feel strong empathy for folks who didn't have this. I'm very privileged to have lived in a community like this one during that time. You've been listening to Yohai Gao. He's the chair of membership at Rocky Hill Co-Housing in Massachusetts. Thank you so much, Yohai, for educating us about co-housing today. Thanks for having me. And a quick reminder for our listeners that it's our October Fun Drive. You can support our station with a pledge by going to ctpublic.org slash donate. 
We'll be back after a short break to talk about everyone's least favorite insect, at least mine, the mosquito. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've had a hot and wet summer here in Connecticut. Did you notice more mosquitoes where you live? I certainly have, and I've been eaten alive. Joining us now to talk about how mosquitoes are impacting health worldwide is Stephanie Nolan. She covers global health for the New York Times. Stephanie, welcome to where we live today. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Stephanie, I want to jump straight to, you know, what does the efforts around combating mosquitoes look like worldwide right now? Well, that really depends where you are. If, um, as you say, you, you know, if you're in Connecticut and you're being bothered by nuisance mosquitoes, then that might mean just, you know, repellents or putting in some new screens. If you live somewhere where life-threatening diseases are carried by mosquitoes, then you have a problem on a much bigger scale. And one of the things that's part of this project that I've been working on over the last year was really looking at how, regrettably, sorry to be the bearer of more bad news, but the areas of the world where those mosquitoes that carry the really serious illnesses are found are expanding quite quickly because of climate change. Right. And that's certainly a familiar topic that we've had on where we live over the last couple of months. And you spent the past year or two traveling to five countries in Africa and Latin America to examine uh, the growing uh, public health threat of mosquitoes. Can you tell us some of about some of the people that you've met abroad and how they are being impacted by the mosquitoes? Yeah. So, you know, when we talk about mosquito-borne disease um, in sub-Saharan Africa, the one that's the biggest worry is malaria, obviously. And the world for a while there was making great progress against malaria. And unfortunately, that started to reverse. And I can certainly tell you a bit about why if you're interested. But um, I went to look at some new technologies that are coming uh, to try and, you know, most of the progress we've made to date against malaria in sub-Saharan Africa has been because of bed nets and because of the success of getting insecticide treated bed nets to everybody who lived in a in a vulnerable area and when that happened mosquitoes which are you know very adaptable little creatures stopped primarily biting people indoors and at night and started biting outdoors and during the day more and so the tools that and and I should also say at the same time, they've evolved resistance to every insecticide that's being used everywhere around the world. There are none that that work really effectively anymore. And so those two tools were the primary thing that were being used to push back mosquitoes in sub-Saharan Africa, and they don't work as well. If you're talking about areas of Southeast Asia, uh, South Asia, and also Latin America, the big concern tends to be arboviruses. So that's dengue, chikungunya, um, uh, Zika, yellow fever. Uh, The mosquito that carries those is expanding its range really quickly. And again, like the insecticides don't work as well as they used to. And a bed net doesn't help you with this guy because it'll live in your house. It'll breed in a bottle cap. It'll hang out in your closet. Um, And so, you know, it'll get you during the day. It'll get you on your patio. And so, the tools that we've had don't work so well. And so one of the things you were asking about people, one of the things that was really 
I've been covering this stuff for a long time for the best part of 30 years. And, and the, one of the things that was really heartening for me was um, in the field, visiting the entomologists and the other scientists doing this work. Um, I met a lot of, you know, most of that research these days is being conducted by Africans rather than by European or American researchers. And so that was really nice to see. So I met a lot of young African scientists who are really, um, really invested in trying to eliminate malaria from their communities because they've grown up with it. Um, but I also met families for whom this is not gone. I met a woman named Mario Gudetti in, in rural Kenya, uh, the area with the highest malaria prevalence in the world. And, you know, I remember her saying to me, when there's malaria in the family, life just stops, right? And and everything is focused around this person is who is sick and how they can get well. And you're pouring the family resources into treatments and clinics. And it's just so debilitating for people. So the idea that we're not making progress anymore, is, it's, a, it's a huge concern. Right. And then you, you also mentioned malaria a couple of times. And that's something that, you know, we're not that familiar here in the U.S., but slowly we are because the range you talked about, too, is also coming here. Can you talk about what this disease entails? And should we be concerned? You know, how dire is this problem? Yeah. So this year was a funny one, right? Because for the first time in, in more than 20 years, you had locally transmitted malaria in the U.S., um, I should say that no expert that I spoke to felt like there was a serious risk that the U.S. is going to return to being a malarial zone, as it was, right? Like right. 150 years ago, uh, malaria was a big killer in the American South. Um, no one thought that we're headed that way <laughs> that quickly. Right. But the fact that you saw this handful of cases this year, I think, is just a sort of harbinger of, of how mosquitoes are changing. Um, malaria is a parasite. It's carried by uh, a few different species of mosquitoes, but primarily a mosquito is called a mosquito, the, the, the Anopheles families of mosquitoes. And, uh, and what happens is if you unfortunately have malaria, Catherine, and the mosquito bites you, uh, and we're staying together in a house, uh, and the parasite is in that mosquito, it reproduces in that mosquito, and then it bites me a couple of days later and passes it on to me. And, you know, malaria, especially it's you know fatal most often in young children but for everybody that i've seen who's had the disease or who has it i mean i certainly went to a lot of clinics and hospitals full of sick people it's um cycling fevers really really high fevers that can make you uh hallucinate it's piercing headaches that are so bad you can't open your eyes it's vomiting incredible weakness and you know you don't get it once in your life right you uh, the kids in the most affected areas some of them are having nine or ten cases a year, which obviously has a huge impact on the family's economic prosperity, but also on the ability of those kids to go to school and to learn, right? Like it just, it's just a, it's, um, it's really a scourge. And, and in the places where it's still a problem, it's still a major shaper of life. Right. So I've got about three minutes here, but I've got two questions for you. Can we talk about how is climate change exacerbating the mosquito population? And what can we do to to, pre, you know, to protect, protect ourselves? Is it Are there vaccines or insecticides? You know, what can we do? So climate change is primarily an issue because uh, it is making things warmer and wetter in more places and mosquitoes like it. Um, it also means, you know, because of climate, there are also larger and larger populations of refugees around the world and refugees who tend to be in substandard housing are extra vulnerable to mosquito bites. In terms of what we can do, so my series for the Times looks at all kinds of solutions that are coming and some of them are very straightforward things like handing a hanging um, sheets of repellent in, you know, in 
inside your home when you're not you're awake, you're not under your nets. Um, so those are being those are in clinical trials around the world and they're showing good efficacy. And then you get into like really scientifically complex solutions like genetic modifications of mosquitoes so they can't pass on the disease or in some other way interfering with the mosquito. And some of those are also um, are also showing some promising results. We're going to need all those things because at the moment, mosquitoes are evolving to outstrip the tools that we have much faster than we're coming up with new tools. Right. And have you heard anything about potential vaccines in the future? So there is, there's it's one of the areas, one of the areas of good news is that there is a new vaccine for the dengue virus that's, that seems like it's actually working quite well. And there are new vaccines for malaria that can be given to children and they seem to offer some degree of protection that will be really useful. But as we saw during COVID, Catherine, vaccines are tricky, right? <laughs> right. They're politically charged often. They're expensive. They're hard to deliver. They require infrastructure. So they're not the total solution that we might hope for. Right. Well, we like to end on some good news. So I, I'm going to say that is good news, Stephanie. <laughs> yeah, we'll take it. Right? We'll, we'll take everything we can right now. Well, thank you so much. You've been listening to Stephanie Nolan. She covers global health for The New York Times. Thanks so much, Stephanie, for uh, educating us about mosquitoes today. Thanks for having me. And a reminder for our listeners that it is our October fund drive. You can support our station with a pledge by going to ctpublic.org slash donate. And another fun note to end on is that I will be hosting a conversation with Elise Hugh at Possible Futures in New Haven on Saturday, October 14th at 11 a.m. Hugh is an NPR journalist and author of Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. The event is free, and we hope to see you there. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.